0: So two years ago, we did an episode of our show from uh, Penn State University, and one of our producers, Sarah Koenig, was in Paternoville. Uh, Paternoville is the tent village of students that springs up before every home football game there, not far from the statue of Joe Paterno, the coach, which is outside at Beaver Stadium. The students sleep out in the cold for a couple nights until the game so they get the best seats. This is right before they played Iowa State.
1: Ladies and gentlemen in Paternoville, in 24 hours from now... We
2: will already be up 40 points on <laughs> Iowa.
3: Hey,
2: Chiefs!
1: What time is it? 10:43. And Michigan still
2: sucks. Michigan L2-0.
0: This is just how much Penn State hates Michigan. They're not even playing Michigan the next day, and they still need to express how much they suck. So after hanging out for a while with students who are telling her what football means to them, what Penn State means to them, in both cases, a lot, somebody asked Sarah.
1: All right, so hang on. You've been firing questions. How are you feeling right now? You're sitting here
3: around a bunch
1: of drunk college kids. No,
3: we are not. I feel overwhelmed and surprised
4: by our answers because you were surprised. I'm surprised how, I'm very surprised how genuinely enthusiastic you are about this school. I've, I've never felt that way about anything. Wild What's surprising me is that you guys aren't like cynical about the university at all. Like, you're
3: just there's into nothing it. nothing to be cynical about. Yeah. They know how to de- they well, deal with there's... every situation perfectly.
0: They deal go, with like, every situation perfectly. That's how it looked in 2009. This girl's friends immediately tease her. Well, maybe not every situation, but basically they agree. And if you know much about Penn State, you know why it is that they feel that way. Coach Joe Paterno's grand experiment was to create a football program that would not only win games, the players would be the kind of students who take academics seriously. They'd be held accountable for going to class. Success with honor was its motto. Back in two thousand nine, uh, when we did that show, I asked some students what made Penn State football special, and the answer was immediate. It was obvious. Joe Paterno.
1: <laughs> Joe Paterno is what brings a lot of the. It's. It's like. We pride ourselves, like, on the things that, like, Joe Paterno preaches. Yeah, graduation rates is a big thing, Joe Paul. I don't, we have one of the highest, I think we have the highest percent. 82 percent, 82 percent of the Penn State. So I, in the big t- highest in the 10, big, big Ten, 10 definitely. definitely.
0: They told me fans are supposed to keep a certain code of behavior toward their rivals. Players aren't allowed to gloat, and they do well.
1: Uh, yeah, I'll never forget Joe, or a guy, one of our players flipped into the end zone scoring a touchdown and got a 15-yard excessive celebration that for that. Was, uh, Joe Pater- I mean, he's an old man, but he... Got down the sideline in that kid's face right away saying, you know, let's be sportsmanship. Exactly.
0: This is a point of pride for them. Our sports program does things right. And this, all of this, this is what went to hell in the last two weeks. With the charges that former Penn State assistant coach Jerry Sandusky sexually abused boys and Penn State officials knew. If you followed the news even a little bit, you've heard the charges from the grand jury's report Most damning, assistant coach Mike McQuarrie says that back in 2002, he walked in on Sandusky in the locker room shower. The Grand Jury Report doesn't use the word raping, but that's plainly what they're talking about, raping a boy of about 10 years old. McQuarrie then told Coach Paterno what he saw. Paterno did not call the police, but testified that he instead told the head of the athletic program, Tim Curley, and Penn State Administrator, Gary Schultz. They did not go to the police either. Instead, they banned Sandusky from bringing children into the locker room. That was it. Schultz testified that the university's president, Graham Spanier, approved that decision. Spanier, Schultz, and Curley had their own side of the story. They claimed that they had not been told that Sandusky was actually having sex with a child. They didn't know that it went that far. The grand jury notes in its report that it did not find Tim Curley and Gary Schultz's testimony to be entirely credible. Penn State, all this news has been like a bomb going off. As you probably heard, students rioted. And then everybody regrouped and tried to figure out what to make of it all. Today on our radio program, we're going to spend the hour at Penn State, try to capture what it feels like there right now, and it is pretty extreme. It really is like people's world has been turned upside down. For context, later in the hour, we're going to hear some excerpts from our original 2009 program about Penn State, which people have been uh, tweeting and emailing about in the last two weeks. Because... It gives a, a sense of just how intense the culture of football is at Penn State. You see why everybody's feelings are running so high. From WBZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. back one say it ain't so, Joe. So, Our producer, Sarah Kenick, lives in State College, in the town that is the home of Penn State. And uh, she says it has been a weird two weeks.
4: Here's what it's like to live here right now. 100,000 people are having the same conversation at the same time, everywhere they go. I'm overhearing them, in line at the coffee shop, at my son's taekwondo class, in a neighbor's driveway, as people walk down the sidewalk talking on their cell phones. The weekly newsletter for my kid's school began, in light of the truly tragic events, etc., And I'm having these conversations myself, with everyone I know, and with many people I don't know, like the guy behind the counter at Kinko's, who told me he didn't want to talk about it, and then we talked about it for 15 minutes. We can't stop, because what happened here makes no sense.
5: I can almost see how it happened. Um,
4: Almost. This is Nancy Weinreb. She's lived here for more than 30 years, worked in the university library. Her husband is a professor of organic chemistry. and She knows all the higher-ups involved in this thing. Maybe not well, but just socially, or knows people who knows them. The Spaniards, the Curleys, the Schultzes. She knows Mrs. Schultz.
5: I, I really, it's,
4: it's
3: hard. It's hard to understand, though. It's hard to understand how the, the leadership, uh, I mean, they're very good people and good, good men could
4: not do what they should have done. And, I don't know. Because you do think of them as good men. Mm
5: Mm-hmm. You do? Yeah, I do.
4: And do you still? Well, I I think they were terribly wrong. But yes, I guess I do. Yeah. Yeah. Are you surprised to hear yourself say you still think of them as good men? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I am surprised to hear myself think that, yes. I've heard of a few people who compared this thing to 9-11, which seems melodramatic to me, but in one way I do see the similarity, this feeling of the whole place suddenly seeming unreal, off its axis. Because how could good men turn out to be bad men? And obviously I don't mean Sandusky here, people have no ambivalence about Sandusky. The confusion is all about the guys around Sandusky, who appeared to have let the alleged crimes go on. I met Nancy Weinreb through her son, Michael Weinreb. Michael is a sports writer. He wrote a book all about football in the 1980s, a large chunk of which is about Penn State, actually. And he's a columnist for this new online magazine called Grantland. He's been writing great columns since this story erupted two weeks ago. At least half a dozen people told me about them. They're circulating like crazy here. Because he's a local, and he's just as disoriented as we are. In one of the columns, he wrote, I can't add a lot to what's been written about the facts of the burgeoning scandal at Penn State, except to tell you how strange it feels to type the phrase burgeoning scandal at Penn State. I know that I'm too emotionally attached to the situation to offer any kind of objective take, though I don't think I realized how emotionally attached I was until this occurred. In another column, he tells a story his mom told him last weekend. Quote, I think it explains as well as anything how jarring this is for a community that has never experienced such a complete and utter shock to its system. My mother's friends, let us call them the exes, are cordial with Graham Spanier, the university president who lost his job a few days before. So last week, Mrs. X baked a coffee cake, got in her car, sweet-talked the security guard stationed in the Spanier's driveway, and dropped it off at the front door. It was not meant to condone anything Spanier had done. It was merely a way of acknowledging, well, honestly, I don't know what the hell it was meant to acknowledge, and the X's didn't either. But it's just something you do in small towns, isn't it? Unquote. I understand that. What do you do when a massive child rape scandal hits your town? So I called Michael up. We met last Friday at the giant vigil in front of Old Main, Penn State's admin building. Students organized it to recognize sex abuse victims. We talked about, what
1: else, Penn State football. I mean, I do watch all the games. Like, we went on our honeymoon in Greece this year, and I found myself following a football game on my cell phone at 10 o'clock at night. I'm feeling like an idiot for doing it. I'm sitting in a hotel lobby in Athens and I'm following a football game on my cell phone. <laughs> so, It was freezing. We walked
4: to his friend Ryan's car. Michael lives in New York City now and he'd come back here to go to Saturday's game and to just be here to see what it felt like to be back home. He grew up in town, went to Penn State, and And wrote for the school paper. And he's quick to issue the following disclaimer. He is fully aware that this whole ordeal isn't about him. It's about little kids kids who were hideously abused. And how it affected him personally, obviously, that does not matter one way or the other. And yet, like so many people from State College, he's been deeply freaked out ever since he heard about this
1: thing. It doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't compute. So that's a, that's a lot of what I was talking about with my parents, too, is just how that part of it, it, it just doesn't, it just goes against everything that you've thought you understood, you know? <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just like, it, I just, uh, I, I don't know, I, I keep waking up every morning and thinking that this is, that, that, that it's a dream. It, it just, it doesn't, still doesn't seem real. I was expecting to come up here and it to feel different in some way, but it's still the same place, you know? And, uh, like, I don't even know, I don't know why I'm here or what I'm supposed to be writing or what I'm supposed to be doing at this point.
4: We drove over to the football stadium to see if kids were camping out before the game at Paternoville. There was almost no one there. It was too cold. Just two tents were still up, and one had blown over backwards like a helpless beetle. the three of us, Michael, Ryan, and I, ended up talking until 1.30 in the morning. Like I said earlier, you just can't stop. For my part, I'm basically rubbernecking, upset and appalled by the crash. Michael, though, it's like he's in the pileup. His memory's tangled up with this mess, with Paterno, with football. He's here to figure out if he can untangle it. He's worried his past, his childhood, might be contaminated by all this stuff.
1: And so a lot of the good memories I have, you know... Father son stuff that um, now I'm starting to sound like it's like a field of dreams or something. All of a sudden, <laughs> but but, uh, I don't know how that stuff changes. I don't, I don't know if it changes. You know, when I watch, when I think of like Penn State beating Nebraska in 1982 and like my dad lifted me on his shoulders because I couldn't see anything because everybody was standing up. And then, you know, the last play of the game, that was like one of the few times I've seen my dad actually shout and get excited about something Um, but I don't know I don't know I don't know how I don't know how it will affect all that stuff because Joe Paterno's there he was an integral part of all that stuff
4: I don't know if you noticed how easily he referenced that Penn State Nebraska game from 1982 I heard Michael do this over and over football is how he marks time an organizing principle for his life he remembers watching the Sugar Bowl in 1979 in the family room when he was six, and then going outside in the snow with his next-door neighbor and replaying the game so Penn State would win. To this day, he wrote in one of his recent columns, when I try to recall the combination of my gym locker or a friend's birthday or the license plate of my rental car, I think in terms of uniform numbers. It's not 31 It's Shane Conlon, Harry Hamilton, Chip Labarca.
1: Penn State played Miami here, um, and they got killed. And that was the last game, I think that was the last game before September 11th. For some reason, I just marked these things. I remember going to the the first game, I think it was the first game after September 11th, and they played Wisconsin.
4: I find this a little crazy, and so does he, that he's bookended September 11th with Penn State football games. And he will, no doubt, mark this thing happening now with tomorrow's game against Nebraska. Here's what he wrote in another column. I do not believe Paterno deserves our sympathy right now. And in fact, I walked around State College this weekend supremely pissed off that he did not live up to the standards he'd like us to believe he set for himself. And I was not alone in that sentiment. And yet when I saw those televised shots of his house on McKee Street, something caught in my throat. A conditioned response to a man I've been raised to believe was the moral arbiter of our community. And of course, Michael's not alone in this. In State College, confusion has seeped into everyone's house. You can't believe it happened, or that it happened the way they're saying it happened in the grand jury report. There must be something we don't know, some key moment, some key insight, some key fact that will make it add up. So thousands and thousands of people here, including me, are turning over theories. A former State College cop told me the other day, the football program is run like the mafia, and Paterno is the godfather. This cop had had suspicions about Sandusky for years, Saw him hug a little league kid a little too enthusiastically one time. And had seen him hanging around high school sports events. And had actually spoken to Sandusky about it. Asked him why, exactly, was he there? So this cop thinks Paterno and all the others around the football program must have known for a long time. Paterno obviously has a lot of defenders, too. Or at least people looking very hard for a reason not to condemn him. I met a football fan slash Penn State law student named Chris, who said he and all his friends in the law program are very skeptical of the grand jury report. Grand jury reports are supposed to be one-sided, he said. And there are so many inconsistencies. Uh, it could be complete reversal. We may find out hypothetically that Tim Curley and Gary Schultz are telling the truth. And it's in fact Mike who, uh who is lying. And this woman, Lori, an alum and Paterno devotee, who I met at the vigil last Friday, she can't believe Paterno would have just let this go. Maybe maybe he was told that things were being followed up on and he was under the impression that they were, but they weren't. I've heard people blame the cops for being in collusion with Penn State. I've heard cockamamie theories, like people saying this is all because the Pennsylvania AG wanted to take down Spanier, who fought publicly with the governor over funding earlier this year, the governor who used to be the AG. I've heard that Paterno promoted Mike McQueary so he'd keep his mouth shut. A lawyer in town told me he blamed the lawyers. Said Penn State's lawyers covered this whole thing up. My friends Kim and Will moved here from Seattle about a decade ago. Our daughters are friends. Will's a bioengineer at Penn State.
6: I'm, I'm one that uh, embraces denial uh, as much as the next person.
4: Denial is a big theory here too. Not just on an institutional level, on a personal level that some combination of Paterno, Curly, Schultz, Spanier simply could not or would not believe such grotesque crimes were happening in their locker rooms.
6: There are so many reasons to tell yourself that you're not exactly sure so you want to, you're telling yourself you have to be so sure and you're not hundred percent sure. And so, well, it wasn't exactly illegal or I don't need to do this, I only need to go this far or somebody else is going to do it. or maybe I didn't maybe he didn't see what he thought he saw and things like that. There's so much incentive to, to try to want it to not be true. And then you just kind of wish it, wish it away.
4: The crux of the riddle for a lot of people is, did Mike McQuarrie really tell Joe Paterno and other university officials exactly what he's now saying he saw? That is, Jerry Sandusky in the shower raping a boy who looked to be about 10 years old. McQuarrie says there was no ambiguity about what he told them. They, of course, say that it was never clear to them the shower incident was of a, quote, sexual nature. So how do you square that? I've heard people say they believe that maybe McQuarrie didn't quite get the information out. There he is, sitting on the sofa across from Paterno, a football legend, his mentor, a 70-something-year-old man, a Catholic. And is he really going to paint the picture? The shower? a little boy? Ugh. Like one of my friends said, it could be that something got lost in the telling. Kim, of Kim and Will, is a psychotherapist. She thinks Spanier, the university president, got all turned around in his decision-making— Partly because of the closed circle he lived in, where administrators talk mostly to other administrators. Spanier has said he never knew about the sexual assaults. Spanier, by the way, is also a family therapist. Do you feel like at the end of the day, he knew or he didn't know the particulars, Spanier? I feel like he probably did. Yes, I do. Really? Mm hmm. And does that make him a bad guy? I don't, like, how do you get your head around that? How do you get your head around that? Uh, maybe from being basically kind of a politician, right, for such a long time that he might have lost touch with some uh, sort of boots-on-the-ground morals that the rest of us can, you know, live with. And he's dealing with large groups of people and large sums of money, and um, I could imagine him confusing his duty to the university and maybe even to the community with his moral obligation to protect the innocent. My friend Eileen grew up about an hour and a half from Penn State in farming country. Eileen used to live across the street from McQuarrie's wife and mother-in-law, and she believes McQuarrie, that he told the higher-ups exactly what he saw, and they buried it.
3: In their world, that kind of stuff didn't happen. Um, And they, they couldn't deal with it. I mean, we're all having trouble dealing with the fact that it happened. And he was like a brother, I guess, in the football family, right? And so how can you deal with a family member doing something like that to kids? Maybe what they said was, you know, it was one time they had a big boy meeting, and they sat him down, they had a sit-down, and they said, you're not going to do this again, right? And he, of course, said, oh, yeah, yeah, no, not a thing, not an issue. And they used that to make themselves feel better and, you know, for the greater good of all of Penn State. And I want, I want to think they thought they were doing the right thing. I think Jopa did, right? That's his skewed vision, right? Of
4: oh, you think, you think they thought they were doing the right thing?
3: I think at least and I'm not giving him an out here. But yeah, I think in that twisted world he he, he thought it'll serve more kids and f- it'll be for the greater good if we just make this go away so that the football program can keep on doing what it does. And I'm not a fo- oh god, I'm not a football person. <laughs> Wait, are you were you just nervous to say that on T? <laughs> yes. yes. um I will explain that why where do we live right I think that's part of this whole thing imagine if me who does not give a about it right really has some hesitation in in this town and because of the people in my life some of the people in my life yeah right and I didn't even realize that Sarah that was involuntary Really, that's ridiculous. It would be like me saying to my sister who lives in rural Pennsylvania, yeah, I don't really care about the Steelers. I would not be invited for Christmas.
4: (laughs) On Saturday morning, Michael Weinreb and his parents and some family friends met, like they always do, at the chemistry building where Michael's father works and then made the trek over to the football game.
1: Where were the where did the chicken coops used to be? The chicken coops will pass by where the chicken okay. coops used to be. It's uh, It's always odd to me. It's where the uh, their field hockey fields over there now. Yeah, but you'd have to make this walk up there, and oh, you'd have would, to walk well, by these. Awfully yeah, well, it would smell. <laughs> was part it's, of the problem. It's terrible.
4: This exchange about the chicken coops was the sum total of Michael's communication with his father on the walk over, by the way, which Michael said was typical. His father is not a huge talker. We headed up to Beaver Stadium, and again, things were more or less the same as any football Saturday. It was a beautiful day. People everywhere looking happy.
1: It just feels so normal right now, and it's 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 odd. Um,
4: is that comforting to you, or is it just weird?
1: It's just kind of weird. I feel like we should, you know, I feel like I should constantly be apologizing, you know. Um, and to whom? To everybody. I mean, to the to the victims, obviously. To the to so the people who saw that stuff on TV the other night, it just, yeah. you know, like this, one, this, this woman holding up that sign. That's kind of how I feel, you know. What's the sign? It says, to the victims, I apologize for Penn State.
4: Michael shoved a dollar into a box. There were some that, other students collecting money for a child abuse charity. But, fans were just shoveling money at them, jamming bills in there. So just to recap, this terrible story breaks open. People in State College are stunned. Then a couple days later, There's a riot. A big, ugly retching of misplaced anger. And then two days after that, there's a vigil. A massive, solemn gathering that had the double benefit of calming the campus and looking good on the evening news. And then, two days after that, there's a football game. And all of a sudden, that off-kilter feeling is gone. People are cheerful, excited. That's how it felt to me, anyway. And it occurs to me that maybe that's what happened to Paterno and those guys in the administration back when they first got wind of Sandusky's alleged crimes. Just give it some space squint into the sun, go to a football game. And you can kind of forget about it. The Following morning, on Sunday, Michael told me it did feel different inside the stadium. More subdued. Even the cheering was subdued.
1: It was just kind of quiet, even when it was loud. And it's like people were so tired of talking about the situation that they wanted to try to talk about the game. But then you start talking about the game and you'd be like, how can we talk about the game? And then, you know, there was a moment in the fourth quarter where it was like Penn State was down 17 to nothing. Then they came back and made it 17-14. And then they got a defensive stop and got the ball back. And it was like, I allowed myself like one moment where I was like, kind of got excited, you know? Yeah. I was kind of like, okay, I'm going to allow myself to get excited about football for two minutes here. And then they lost and it was like i don't care <laughs> you know i didn't care that they lost you know um
4: have you had that feeling before
1: uh not quite like this no i don't know yeah see like I, that's the thing a couple of my friends from college emailed and they were like god i wish we would have won that you know and i was like why what difference does it make it, it didn't matter you know it just didn't matter
4: did your parents um have anything to say about it? Like that it felt different to them or?
1: They had some guys in their row who were so drunk that they puked all over themselves. And I was like, that's that's weirdly kind of like going to a funeral hammer, you know? It's like, it's like you just, just have some respect. First of all, it's a noon game. How do you get that drunk, you know? But
4: you know how you get yeah, that I drunk, know. you start at 7.30. I
1: know, <laughs> I know, I did that. I've done that before, so I shouldn't say anything.
4: Honestly, seeing drunk kids stumbling back from the game on Saturday, that was the one thing that made me feel like the town was going back to normal, for better or for worse.
0: Sarah Koenig. Coming up, we go back in time through the miracle of audio recording technology to before all this happened, before all the trouble, to the program that we did back in 2009 about Penn State. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. It's "This American Life, Myra Glass. This week on our show, we've been talking about Penn State and how people there are reacting to grand jury charges that a former assistant coach sexually abused young boys and charges that Penn State officials failed to report the abuse to authorities. In this half of the show, we're going to play excerpts from our 2009 episode about Penn State. That show is about uh, mostly the fact that the school was named the nation's number one party school that year. So it's mostly about partying and drinking, which have nothing at all to do with this sex abuse scandal. I just need to get out in front of that right now. But that said, you can't talk about partying and drinking at Penn State without talking about football. Football is a kind of a location where a lot of things like that occur. And though these stories are about drinking throughout all the stories— there are these moments where you see just how central it is in the life of Penn State. You see the before in the before and after of this scandal. And in the before, and this explains a lot about the after, people loved Penn State and the love was uncomplicated. Students were spontaneously telling all of us how much they loved the school, how they never wanted the college experience to end. They chanted the school chant, we are Penn State, not just in the football stadium. It was in the student union, it was in the shuttle bus, they were just it out of the blue. He said, we are Penn State in conversation, to make a point. They were part of this club that they were really excited to be part of. In 2009, we were there for the last home game of the season, exactly two years and one week ago. Penn State was 44,000 students at the time. To describe uh, the level of drinking and partying and football fandom, uh, at one point in the show I was joined in the studio back in 2009 by Sarah Koenig, uh, who you heard earlier in today's show.
4: Right. A couple of weeks before you guys came to State College, there was this huge freak snowstorm and they had to cancel tailgating for the first time anyone could remember because the conditions were so dangerous by the field. But it didn't stop anyone. I saw people tailgating on their, in their yards, um, on their front lawns, even in my neighborhood. I went into a parking garage and found all these people on the fourth floor, which is really strange to see. I mean, it's a parking garage, so there's dirty cars everywhere. The ceiling is low. It's cold. It's dark. At, at the end of one row of cars, there were these two tables pushed together in an L-shape with tablecloth and all kinds of food and a couple of birthday cakes.
7: Whose birthday is it? It's my birthday! It's my birthday, my
4: 21st birthday. <laughs> and happy birthday. Thank you. And what are you doing on the fourth floor of a parking garage?
7: I'm getting drunk and tailgating. <laughs> Describe your, your headgear there. Um, it's a crown with a 21 that's on fire, and it says, where's the bar? <laughs> So who brought all this food? My mom and dad, because they love me, and they're the best.
4: <laughs> About a half dozen older people were there, too, her parents and some of their friends. And there were a bunch of other tailgates happening around us. And one couple was having their 40th wedding anniversary. Wow. Um, in the garage. In the garage, yeah. At one point, a woman, in probably in her 50s, walked up and handed the birthday girl a red plastic cup. Oh,
7: thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? <laughs> Is there is alcohol it in it? Most definitely. <laughs> is it good? Oh my god, this is the strongest drink I've ever had in my life. <laughs> <laughs> they just brought me a really strong alcoholic lemonade. Are you? Is
4: is that your daughter? Are you the mom? No, no. Oh, who, what's your? We're parked over there. <laughs> you, you just saw that this is happening. Yes. <laughs>
1: we got to keep ourselves entertained somehow, right?
4: Watch the 21-year-old get plastered. That's the entertainment.
1: Exactly, exactly.
7: <laughs> Thank you so much for the drink.
0: At tailgate parties, you see just how deeply embedded drinking is in like a tent state. It's entire families. It's several generations together. It's outdoor public drinking, which gives you this feeling when you're there that the whole world is drinking, probably because there's so much of it. In 2009, when we were there, Penn State had the largest stadium in North America, holds over 100,000 people. So the tailgates are these huge masses of humanity spread out as far as you can see all around the stadium, starting at 8 in the morning, starting really early, which is when these alums got here. They talked to one of our producers, Aaron Scott.
1: So you went to bed? three or four, you got up, and you're drinking again. Is it ever too early to drink?
7: No. No. Never.
1: Eight
0: in the morning means, by the way, that if it's a night game, they will tailgate for 12 hours, in the cold, in the freezing cold sometimes, before kickoff.
4: I talked to a bunch of alums at a tailgate about what would happen if they weren't allowed to drink at all.
0: I think there would be a revolt. I think there would be a huge,
6: huge pushback from the alumni that donate a lot of money to this school to say that you can't have alcohol to tailgate.
4: That's Mark Johnson, class of 1977.
6: It's just part of the culture. I mean, that's why this school sells 110,000 tickets for every, you know, just, it's a part of it. It's just part of that
0: tradition. Usually, pounding down drinks at 8 in the morning can be kind of, I don't know, sad. But the main thing about this kind of drinking, where it's tied in with tradition and football and family and this overwhelming sense of school spirit, is that it feels incredibly wholesome. The whole campus feels like a Chevy commercial. It's welcoming, people are friendly. It's hard to resist.
7: You could go to any tailgate here, any Penn State tailgate, and you are just welcome.
0: Here's a junior named Megan Clark.
7: I mean, you could go up to someone that's cooking, like at a grill, and be like, "Hey, can I have a burger?" And I'm like, "Oh, sure." I mean, so it's just like endless food. It's everyone's, you know, friendly with everyone. Everyone's just the atmosphere here is just. Yeah, I've never experienced anything, you know, like Penn State atmosphere. Yeah.
0: Sarah met this next guy, Peter, drinking outside the stadium with his friends before the game. He's from Slovakia.
1: I came to U.S. and I started watching baseball and football, and I didn't understand it at all. The rules were just, you know, big blah to me. And I didn't get my football tickets my freshman year, but uh, I was able to go in one or two games. And uh, I guess I, I started to like the atmosphere that is surrounded by, uh, by the football. And it kind of reminded me of home where everyone is welcoming of you, you know, everyone's a big family and, you know, no matter where you are from, you root for the same team. I don't know. It made me feel like I'm home again and uh,
7: surrounded by friends. And
1: so I just love it now. I heart you, too. I'm getting emotional.
0: This sense that we're a family. We're about football. Everybody in the school is one. It spills over from the football games into the whole weekend. Into the week, actually. Friday night is the night before the football game, outside East Halls, the big freshman dorms. Dozens of kids are lined up for free shuttle buses that are going to take them across campus to the frats and parties on the other side. Two of our producers, Jane Feltus and Lisa Pollock, noticed that all the girls wear these ratty-looking hoodies and jackets over their dress-up clothes. Somebody told them that the word for this is frackets. They went up to some girls to confirm that.
7: Have you guys heard of something called frackets? Oh, yeah, this is a, oh, I'm a pro at frackets. <laughs> a fracket, by definition, is a jacket made for frats. It's basically a crappy jacket that's cheap and you don't care about. Yeah,
3: because like, they get lost, they get like puked on. You don't want that back. You don't want it back, just lose it, yeah.
0: Jane wrote on The Best with the Freshman. She joins me now.
4: So that girl, her name's Chewy, she's from Saudi Arabia. When I met her and her friend Megna, they were already on their second loop around campus. They were kind of drunk and they'd missed their stop the first time. And on this bus, everyone keeps and breaking into song. Girl,
7: just for the ba, 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 ba. <laughs> what is happening? This is the drunk bus. Good
3: timing. Oh my God! Is this the same stop where we found out that we were late? <laughs> no, no, <it's> not.
0: <laughs> I know Penn State administration does a pretty thorough job surveying students to track how much they're drinking. The surveys show that every Friday and every Saturday night, 75% of the school drinks, that's over 30,000 people, an average of four and a half drinks per person. And the students drink those drinks in about three hours average. To put those numbers in perspective, binge drinking, or as it's been rebranded lately, high-risk or dangerous drinking, is defined as four drinks for a woman or five drinks for a man consumed in just two hours.
7: So good! So good! So good! So good! good. Ah!
0: When you get down into the details of Penn State's numbers, it works out to over half the students regularly binge drinking, which is just a little bit above the national average for college students.
7: I want to know if you'll be my
0: girl. Lots of students said something that was hard to argue with. When else are they going to get a chance to do this? Like, I was talking to the senior.
3: So what's the wildest thing you've seen at a party at the school? wildest thing at a party
2: somebody
1: streaking fully naked and throw and pretending to throw a don, uh, monkey feces as they were doing it and uh, that was me that was you that was me had- when was that last week last week, last week.
2: Last week. So, yeah, you can
1: only do that stuff now when you're in college you know it, that's you can't do it in, I wouldn't be able to do it six months from now. It's college.
0: Yes, there's a downside to all this. In the surveys of students done by the school, a fourth of Penn State students say that drinking has caused them to miss class or get behind on their schoolwork. 15% say that they've been pushed, hit, or assaulted. 7% say that drinking led to what the survey called, uh, this is their euphemism, quote, an unwanted sexual experience. There actually isn't uh, data at Penn State linking drinking and date rape. Six percent said that they'd gotten into what you would call a real physical fight. And then there are crimes that you never hear of unless you live in a place like State College.
3: Our daughter came into the kitchen while we were in the midst of hurriedly getting everything done and said something to the effect of, Mommy, I want to play in my room. Can you please get that man out of my bed? And I remember having said something to the fact, oh, there's no man in your bed. And she actually went away and came back a few minutes later. So I guess she went up to check and she out. there is a man in my bed and I want to play in my room. Would you please get him out of there?
0: This is the longtime State College resident named Nina White. And the man on the bed, of course, was a college student who committed a surprisingly common crime in this town. He came to her house drunk, found a comfortable place, and fell asleep. When we were at Penn State in 2009, it was the neighbors who had the biggest concerns about all the drinking because of incidents like this. And it was one of the neighbors in particular who got us interested in all the partying as something to report on. That neighbor was our colleague, this American Life producer, Sarah Koenig, who, as I said, lives in State College. Lives because her husband teaches at the school. And the episode that we did in 2009 began with us sitting on the porch. One, two, three. Okay, Sarah, so it's 10 of one on a Friday night in November, and we're sitting on your porch. And, um, it seems pretty quiet.
4: It's not that bad.
0: By day, I have to say, sir, this neighborhood is like a college town that you would see in an old Hollywood film. It's beautiful professor's homes, built in the 20s and 30s. It's tree-lined streets. It's gardens. But by night, we'd been on our porch for five minutes. When...
4: (laughs) They seem drunk. These kids seem drunk. This this, this couple here, they're sort of staggering a bit. I think he's, like, holding her up or something.
0: It's nine students walking down the middle of the street. It happens all the time.
4: That's noisy, right? It's like it doesn't occur to them at all, I think, that there are people just in these houses trying to sleep. And I kind of remember being that way in college, too, actually.
0: Yeah, I do, too. Six minutes later, there's another group of drunk students. One tosses something onto a lawn.
4: Can you guys pick up your trash, please? Can you pick up your plate, your pizza plate, please? People live here. They pay no attention.
0: (laughs) Five minutes after that, we hear this clattering from the alley that runs next to Sarah's house.
4: Whoa, what was that? Actually, I'd kind of like to know what that was. What's going
0: on? We run down the alley, and two college boys run away as they see us coming. Don't go back there, you could get raped, The to Sarah.
4: See, okay, they just threw, they just threw somebody's um, trash can, or like drop kicked it up in the air.
0: Twelve minutes after that, from the other direction, we hear a scraping, and a loud rumbling, I guess.
4: That's somebody's property. That might have been a, a sign, actually.
0: I don't know how many street signs you need to hear dragged through your neighborhood before you can recognize the sound that makes from all the way around the corner, but apparently my colleague Sarah has seen whatever that number is. We got to investigate and find two guys. So, so just describe what you got here.
1: Ah, uh, stop sign. Nice big pole on it.
4: Stop sign. That's kind of a big thing when you see it up close, isn't it? Whoa, whoa. Where did Sorry. you guys find that? Like, where does it belong?
1: I don't know. That is a good question. Oh, We just found it on a lawn. We
4: found it on a lawn.
1: Oh, you found it on someone's lawn. It was already ripped up. Yeah, it was already on oh, f- someone's lawn. We alone. just decided, hey, why not make use of it and take it?
0: Of course, this story makes no sense at all. I informed the two guys that I don't need to know their names.
1: Well, in that case, we took it from the corner right there. <laughs> Which one? Uh, where that car just turned? Okay. Did pretty. Pull sure. it out of the ground? Yeah, it was cemented in pretty well. Oh. Just get a little uh, rocking back and forth between two people, comes right up. You guys came from like a house party somewhere? Yeah. Uh, no, we were just hanging out with a bunch of friends, just drinking, taking some shots.
0: Seems like kind of an academic distinction to me, but.
1: With that, the other guy starts running
0: with the street sign toward Garner Street, which is hard because it's attached to a seven-foot metal pole, and it's heavy. Sarah and I go back around the corner to her front yard. The evening is not over at all. Just in time to spot another student, this one coming out of her garden, Sarah assumes from the bushes back there.
4: I didn't pee. Really? I never peed. Really? I was just
0: sitting down. He goes, and it's not a minute later that Sarah points towards the alley where there are three girls in miniskirts, under a streetlight, Fully visible.
4: Oh, a peeing, peeing, a peeing, 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 oh, peeing. Here, I'm telling you. It's, it's this
0: spot. One girl hikes up her skirt.
4: Wait, wait, stay back, stay back, stay back. Okay, but they're peeing on, in my yard. They're peeing in my yard. Yeah, okay. That's my car, okay? And three feet back is a girl's white ass peeing. She saw we saw her. She yeah. stopped. She <laughs> stopped. <laughs> you know, that might be why the plants grow really, really well in that spot. I'm just realizing.
0: sarah so caught got other groups of girls peeing in that same spot. Once you heard a girl say, this is a
4: good place. I go here all the time. They're so embarrassed. There's like muffled giggling happening across the street.
0: The weekend that we recorded this back in 2009, Penn State was in fact the country's number one party school, named by the people who named the number one party school in our country, the Princeton Review. And uh, this is apparently what it means to be the number one party school in the country from the moment that Sarah and I turned on the tape recorder to the moment that she sent those girls looking for somebody else's yard to pee in. Total time 34 minutes. It's 1.30 in the morning now.
4: The, the fact that we saw that much like mayhem is sort of going on at one corner. So that means it's multiplied that by, you know, this entire neighborhood and other neighborhoods around. People are peeing everywhere. Garbage cans are getting kicked. Stop signs are getting pulled out of the road. People are littering, you know.
0: The Princeton Review chooses the number one party school from online student surveys. 120,000 students at 371 schools around the country answered these questions. How widely used are beer, alcohol, marijuana, and other drugs at your school? How big is frat life at your school? And finally, how many hours do you study each day? Students aren't randomly selected, so it's not, strictly speaking, a scientific survey. But every year, Penn State ranks very high. In the last five years, it's been the number three party school twice It's been the number seven party school in the country. It's been the number nine party school in the country. And, of course, number one party school in 2009, the year we were there. That year, a freshman named Joe Dado died in an alcohol-related incident in September, just a month into the school year. He was 18. In the episode that we did back then, Sarah Koenig did a big story about the university's response to this incident and to the level of alcohol consumption at the school in general. When these kinds of deaths have happened at other schools, Colorado State, MIT, Indiana University, UVA, Administrations have used the deaths to push for change, not at Penn State. Nobody used the occasion to urge the students to stop drinking so much. Instead, the message from the administration was, if you're going to get plastered, do it more responsibly. As we noted at the time, maybe the administration figured that this message had a better chance of sticking, and it did stick. The lesson students took, and we heard this from students that we talked to, was not that Dado drank too much, but that he would have been alive if only he hadn't gone off by himself. Sarah talked in the show about how the university's president, Graham Spanier, came in 15 years before that as a crusader against binge drinking. He was not shy about calling alcohol use the school's biggest problem. And he got pushback for that from alumni, from university trustee. He was booed by students at a football game. And he stopped hammering the topic so publicly. Here's uh, from that story that Sarah did back in 2009. You'll hear uh, she actually goes to Spanier. you hear Spanier in this clip. He was fired last week after the child sex abuse scandal broke.
4: What you hear all the time around here, off the record, from local residents, from faculty, from other administrators, is that Spanier really can't or won't do anything more draconian about the drinking problem here, make fraternities dry, say, or curb tailgating, because politically he simply cannot risk alienating those secret cows Sims is talking about, especially alumni and athletics, meaning football, which brings in enormous money. Tens of thousands of alumni come to football games, rent skyboxes, the only places in the stadium where you can drink, by the way. They arrange their lives around the season. It's a big part of why they give money to the school. Last year, alums and other donors gave $182 million. I asked Spanier if there was something he needed to be careful about here in terms of the connection between football and donors and booze. No,
6: I don't buy that at all. That's, that's just speculation that you hear from people like, oh, that must be part of the issue. They would never uh, go after the alumni. The, the fact is, what happens you know, with six or seven home games is not the heart of this issue here. We're talking about you know, the weekend in, weekend out, every day of the week, throughout the year kind of issue.
4: When this comes up, is sort of like, well, someone will say, well, why don't they just make tailgating dry, you know, no alcohol on university property? Is that kind of thing ever even brought up as like a, we just want to signal a culture change. We're just going to make a big, bold move and say this is the, we're going to become a different kind of school now. Is that ever like on the table?
6: No, I don't think so. Um, I can't envision telling alumni of legal age that they can't drink on a football weekend and seeing that that's going to change the problem of alcohol consumption among underage students on college campuses. I I don't think those two things are really tied together.
0: How far would administrators go to protect the football program? course, that's at the heart of the current scandal. And with football so central to Penn State's fundraising, it's easy to see why they would protect it. A Penn State professor named Michael Barabay wrote an op-ed in the New York Times this week about how football built Penn State into the school it is today. He talks about how dramatically the school has improved since coach Joe Paterno first arrived decades ago, how Paterno endowed the professorship that he holds, and at least the academic departments at Penn State. English, sociology, anthropology, that are now rated among the top 10 university programs by the National Research Council. You know, it's that after Joe Paterno's first national championship, Paterno declared that the school had to improve its library because, quote, you can't have a great university without a great library. Paterno and his wife led the capital campaign, the new library voting is named for them. When Penn State football has a winning season, enrollment goes up, Somebody who's tried to quantify just what football means to Penn State financially is Philadelphia Inquirer reporter Frank Fitzpatrick, whose 2000 series on the business of football at Penn State was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. I reached him in State College this week where he was writing a story about the current scandal.
2: You know, without football, it's hard to imagine what this place would look like. You know, I mean, football's really been the engine driving the growth here.
0: How much money does Penn State football bring in?
2: Well, I believe in 2010... They brought in I think it was seventy two million dollars uh and they had cost of i believe nineteen million dollars so that's that's a profit of fifty three million dollars, which is a you know which is a profit margin that most fortune five hundred companies would be envious of
0: What happens to that fifty three uh million dollars profit like where does it go?
2: Well, it goes to fund the other twenty eight or twenty nine teams here at Penn State the entire cost of these teams is is carried by the, uh, the revenue that the football team generates Penn State's fortunate in that they're able to raise enough money to support athletics at, at most schools in this country uh, they run an, an annual average deficit of maybe eight million to ten million dollars a year.
0: you were saying that that fifty three million is the profit in a year from football um at Penn State. How does that compare to the Penn state budget like is that a big chunk of it
2: uh, Their overall budget for the school is probably like four billion.
0: It just doesn't seem like that much. Like it doesn't seem like it would have that much influence.
2: Well, it, what you've got to remember is that that football and Joe Paterno are the face of this university. I mean, that's that's the marketing of of your university. And uh, ter- you you go around campus and look at the at the names of the buildings and the the people that have donated money here, and they're either ex football players, people who have somehow been associated with Joe over the years. So, I mean, if you don't have a successful football team, if you don't have a team that's generating revenue and victories, you're quickly going to find yourself with decreased admissions, with lower contributions.
0: Do you think it's going to affect the 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 school's finances that this is happening?
2: I think that's the great fear. I mean, the fear is that, you know, if Penn State's image, the image they've sold to these donors and contributors all the year is, is this squeaky clean image, and if that's tarnished, you know, that, that's a lot of potential donations. Uh, you know, I, I was just going back on some of my research I did uh, when I was doing this, uh, this series of stories about Penn State. And there were quite a few donors who at that time said, when they had no inkling that anything like this was in the wind, said, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to give my money to Penn State because uh, they do things the right way. If that ever changes... I'll have to make an assessment at that time.
0: Wait, wait, they said if that ever changes, like, I'll have to look at it? <laughs> people actually went that far?
2: Yeah, I mean, because, because you know, at that at, at that time and, and for quite a while, people were wondering what this place is going to look like when Joe leaves. Yeah. You know, Joe's sort of been the guy that's that's propped up this image. So you can imagine that that assessment is being made by hundreds of different people, even as we speak. Do I, do I continue to give my money to Penn State, or do I want my name associated with something so sordid as this?
0: It's Frank Fitzpatrick of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Here's one more thing about how the fate of the football team affects everything in this town. This is another clip from our 2009 show. Uh, Nancy Updike, uh, for that show, did this story about the local businesses at Penn State in the town of State College. Uh, The week that we were there, nearly every business owner told us that their businesses were significantly down because of the football team, because of Penn State's loss to Ohio State the week before. Anyway, this is from her story.
5: This is McClanahan's, a sprawling Hearst Castle of a store. It's your basic drugstore, deli, produce market, hardware, underwear, beer pong, stationery, grocery, Penn State merchandise emporium, which over the years has acquired and absorbed the stores that used to be next to it to the point where it's bought up everything it can and the only way left to expand is to cram more stuff everywhere. And there is always something clamoring for more space. McClanahan's owner, Ray Agostinelli, says that over and over again, he's had to stock way up on some usually sleepy object that has suddenly become a crazy hot seller.
6: Well, it happened one time with uh, marshmallows, and all of a sudden, all the marshmallows were gone. And here, what well, it was, is that they'd take them to the football games, and they were throwing marshmallows.
5: So people were throwing marshmallows onto the field? Oh,
6: yeah. oh and if they did, they were, oh, they were getting pretty dangerous, but <laughs> it wasn't too good. And they got outlawed. Well, <laughs> But the kids would come in and buy all the marshmallows and say, well, wait a minute, we never sold that many marshmallows. Why? But it's just whatever the crazes are, you have to keep up with and be there.
5: And then there are the crazes that never go away. Sex. One of McClanahan's many frank and non judgmental offerings is its display right up front that is condoms on top, lubricant in the middle, pregnancy tests on the bottom. Ray takes me into one of the two Penn State merchandise sections of the store. It's a full sensory experience. That's a CD of the school's band in the background. There are seven different kinds of car air fresheners with the Penn State logo, pacifiers, a steering wheel cover. Ray, are you ever amazed at something you never knew that Penn State logo could be put on it? I just saw a remote control, a TV remote. Put it
6: on here and it'll sell. Put it on your microphone and it'll sell. (laughs)
5: In the almost 50 years Ray's been working at McClanahan's, he bought it from Bob McClanahan 40 years ago. Ray has seen the Penn State merchandise in his store go from almost an afterthought, maybe one rack of sweatshirts, to being a third of his business. The only downside is...
6: If uh, Penn State would have a losing season, sales would drop dramatically.
5: Oh, is that true? Oh my
6: gosh, you can't imagine, you can't imagine.
5: Ray says if Penn State loses one football game, Sales of Penn State merch at McClanahan's go down 20 percent, not for a day, for a week, and sometimes even longer until the next winning game.
0: Okay, there's more to that story, but you'll have to go online. That was Nancy Updike. Let's end this hour at a game, right? A football game. I went to a game uh, when we were there in 2009 with two juniors, Megan Koch and Zach Fliegel. Megan's uh, Nittany Lion memories include the night of her high school homecoming, uh, which also happened to be the night of the 2005 Michigan game. She was all dressed up. Her dad was on the cell phone.
7: He was calling me, telling me, you know, like play-by-play play what was going on. So I remember I, um, I go inside and uh, my field hockey team always gets together in like a hallway. And all the parents come around. Everyone comes around and. you get pictures taken and I remember my dad called me and he's like you're not gonna believe this but Michigan just scored and we lost with two seconds left on the clock and I remember I I just hung up the phone and I was like oh my gosh I started like crying and one of the hockey moms came up to me and she was like Megan what's wrong you know and I was like Penn State just lost and she was she laughed and I have never been so close to punching a parent
0: Zach also has childhood memories of Penn State games. On our way to the stadium, we passed some little boys in the tailgate, tossing around a football.
5: I used to be that kid throwing the football around in between, in between cars
3: and stuff.
0: The Lions played. Lions won. It was the last home game of the year, and seniors down in the first row were crying. Zach said even a bad game, being in the stadium in the student section,
1: it was worth it. I live for this.
0: I'll, I'll probably be coming
1: here until I'm old and wrinkled. Really?
0: So like 50 years from now, where will you be sitting? Point to the spot. Right over there. Hopefully in in WCWD on the 30, 40-yard line, maybe. Yeah, yeah, show me me the seats where you want. And he pointed. Third of the way up, 30-yard line. I went around to his friends in the student section. Nobody hesitated. 50-yard line, skybox, 30-yard line. They all wanted to come back. Though when I emailed Zach this week, and asked if he still thought he'd be back in the year 2059. He said depends on how the school handles the charges in the next few months. Our program today was produced by Sarah Canning, Jonathan Menjivar, Mickey Meek, and me with Alex Bloomberg, Ben Calhoun, Jane Feltis, Lisa Pollock, Robin Semyon, Aaron Scott, Alyssa Shipp, Brian Reed, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder, Seth Lind is our production manager, Emily Condon's our office manager. Special thanks to Will Yerman and Ben Schreier. Our website, where you can hear our original 2009 show about Penn State, number one party school for absolutely free, or you can hear any other show we have ever made, or download our apps or do all kinds of stuff, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEZ Management Oversight for our show by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, who kept holding his personnel conferences at a big boy restaurant
3: near the highway. I know until. They had a big boy meeting, and they sat him down, they had a sit down, and they said, You're not going to do this again, right?
0: I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life.